From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa in partnership with Arab Studies Institute. I am Malihe Razazan. Khalil Bendib is away. This week, we bring you a conversation about the recent Supreme Court ruling upholding Trump administration ban on travelers from seven countries, most of them Muslim-majority nations. We do have precedent, what you might call dark chapters in our history, where laws that exclude people based on race or where they come from have been upheld. One of the earliest cases, quite famous, is called the Chinese Exclusion Act. It referred to a law that excluded Chinese nationals. And some make linkages between the travel or Muslim bans and the Chinese exclusion case. We speak with Penn State immigration law professor Shoba Siva Prasad Wathia of Penn State University about the Supreme Court decision and the Trump administration's xenophobic and anti-immigrant policies. Later in the program, we bring back an interview with Marcel Khalife, celebrated Lebanese composer, singer, and oud player, and one of the Arab world's most revered and celebrated cultural icons. All this coming up on this week's Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. Stay with us. Last month, in a 5-4 to four decision, the Supreme Court reversed a federal court's judgment against the third version of the Trump administration's travel ban, upholding the ban on travel from North Korea, Venezuela, Syria, Iran, Yemen, Somalia, and Libya. Khalil Bendib spoke with Penn State immigration law professor Siva Prasad Watia about the Supreme Court's decision and Trump administration's racist, xenophobic, and anti-immigrant policies. Shobha Wadiya, welcome to Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. It's great to have you with us today. It's great to be here. Shobha, the Trump administration has proven more nightmarish than most of our collective imaginations were were prepared for. Religious bans, Mm -hmm. family separations, overt incitations to hatred and violence, etc., etc., The other two branches of government, which are supposed to be the adults in the room, if and when the executive branch goes rogue, have joined in the madness. And we now have an increasingly extremist Supreme Court. Now that the Supreme Court is in danger of becoming a reliable rubber stamp for the extreme Islamophobic right wing in this country, what recourse is there to defend against further discrimination against Muslims? Well, that's a big question, and one I I don't have a concrete answer to. You know, we do have checks and balances in our government, which many of the people who are even from one of the banned countries come from regimes that lack checks and balances. And so we often do look to, for example, the courts to act as a check when the executive branch or president overreaches. I would say that with many of the policies in the immigration space that we've seen in the age of Trump, the lower courts have stepped in. We've seen that with federal district courts most recently this week in connection with family detention and also in the 
three iterations of the travel or Muslim ban that were announced by President Trump. And so we have to imagine and have faith in the rule of law. I'm a law professor, and I teach the immigration statute pretty regularly. I believe in the rule of law. And if we don't have some faith in the rule of law, then we do end up having conversations about what the future of the courts look like. And I think we're at at such a juncture right now when the highest court in the land is increasingly consolidated on the right, on on the far right. We all know the sorry history of slavery, genocide that have occurred despite protections of the law. But is there a precedent in state-sanctioned persecution of a religious minority? So we, we do have precedent, what you might call dark chapters in our history, where laws that exclude people based on race or where they come from have been upheld. One of the earliest cases, quite famous, is called the Chinese Exclusion Act. It referred to a law that excluded Chinese nationals. And some make linkages between the travel or Muslim bans and the Chinese exclusion case. You also saw that the Korematsu decision relating to the internment of Japanese U.S. citizens was overruled, in a sense, by the majority court in the travel ban decision, but was still deeply criticized in the dissent by Justice Sotomayor, critiquing the court for replacing one bad decision, Korematsu, with another, Hawaii versus Trump, which is the formal name for the travel ban case. So we do have a history of exclusion. Do we have one that is as overt, at least in the immigration space more recently, based on religion? Maybe. It would depend on who you talk to. For example, in the wake of 9-11 or the September 11, 2001 attacks, there were many policies that were issued by the executive branch targeting Muslim, Arab, and South Asian communities. Critics of those policies called out some of these policies for discriminating based on religion, one policy being a registry program known as this National Security Entry-Exit Registration System, or NSEERS. This program, at its peak, pulled men from... 25 countries, 24 of which had Muslim-majority populations for extra interrogation, fingerprinting, and resulted in some cases in detentions and deportations. I'm perfectly aware of what happened to the Chinese and the Japanese, but in those cases, not that it was any better in in terms of dire consequences, but in those cases, it wasn't based on religion. What you just mentioned, and seer ended up punishing people who are not even Muslim. You know, Jews from Iran, for example, just because they happen to be mm-hmm. Iranian, were swept sure. up in this in this terrible... Well, uh, I mean, if, if we were to look at the face of many of these policies, those who support them look facially neutral, right? Or neutral of religion. For example, special registration, arguably even the third version of this travel or Muslim ban did not use the word religion in it, despite the fact that most of the countries that are targeted involve populations of Muslims of 90% or more. But to your point on religious persecution, absolutely. We have a history as well as immigration laws. You know, after the U.S. signed 
treaties that formed the basis for our refugee law, Congress then created and included in our immigration statute protections for people, including those who would face religious persecution by a government or a group that the government is unable or unwilling to control. So it it would be fair to say or start a conversation about the irony, right, between our laws that protect people who are fleeing persecution, including religious persecution, and the creation of policies that seem to legitimize exclusion based on one's religion. Especially given the overt uh, remarks by the now president and back then candidate Donald Trump, who who overtly expressed the desire for a Muslim ban. It didn't come out of the blue, this what we call Muslim ban, other people might call travel ban. It was actually a direct result of, of his expressed wish for for Muslim ban. Absolutely, and that became a big topic, right, during the litigation. You know, to what extent are the statements that were made by the president against Muslims on the campaign trail and after inauguration, I mean, his proposal to shut down Muslim immigration remained on his website while earlier iterations of the ban were created and eventually struck down or expired. And ultimately, the majority court found in Hawaii v. Trump, yes, we we could consider this, in quotes, forensic evidence, but we also care about national security, and there are legitimate national security interests. Now, of course, that was not the direction that the dissent took, and in particular, Justice Sotomayor, who was highly skeptical and was used and quoted many of the negative statements made by the president to say that this, in fact, is a ban that was driven by religious animus. Now that the Muslim ban has been ratified by the highest court in the land, what is to stop Trump from further extending it to even more countries? I think there is a legitimate concern that possibly countries could be added, right? And I think you said it right in that I often get the question, well, what's different? What's new, right? The ban has been in full effect since December 2017 because of orders that were issued by the Supreme Court reinstating the ban while the litigation ensued. And I think what's really changed is now the highest court in the land has upheld the ban is lawful, and that, to me, sends the message that the courts have, have really failed us. And whether countries will be added, we'll have to see, and, and what I can do in this moment of time is counsel people who might be impacted by the version that stands today. Um, and so much of my time at this point is devoted to making sure that people understand whether they're covered by the ban, whether an exemption applies, what the steps are for seeking a waiver if they are covered, and so on. The president also openly speculated about a registry of Muslims which could be understood and is se- seemingly understood by some of his uh, supporters and some in his administration as meaning a prelude for concentration camps. As it happened, after all, uh, to the Japanese-Americans. What's to keep something like that from happening? I mean, would we have to go through another cycle of lower courts intervening and the thing escalating all the way to the Supreme Court? It's really hard to say. On the one hand, 
Cormops, who's been overruled, right? So I think morally and legally, the camps and detentions that took place have been called out. On the other hand, if you look at our immigration detention system, some people would label immigration detention as cages, or at least some of the facilities that families are being held in or adults who are separated from their kids. We could have a round of litigation in terms of what detention looks like, who should be in detention, whether detention should be together or apart. I would hope that we don't return to an era where internment camps are lawful or even close to being good policy or with moral compass as a nation. It's interesting also this slight distinction that people make between concentration camps and internment camps. I was never clear exactly why Japanese-American camps were, many people insist on calling them internment as opposed to concentration. Is that Mm -hmm. because concentration camp is so indelibly linked to the Holocaust? And I'm not sure why people still hesitate to call those concentration camps. I don't self-identify as a history scholar in this arena, but would point out the parallels that have been drawn by those who lived through or have family members who lived through the Holocaust and the Japanese camps as well as immigration detention today. Of course, it's not apples to apples in every scenario. But I think the symbolic point and, and the moral outrage is similar. One thing you raised in one of your previous answers was the question of who, uh, in such a worst-case scenario, God forbid, that ever happens, where detention camps are contemplated again, who would qualify as a Muslim? The, the Muslim rubric seems to me even hazier than the Japanese mm-hmm. one uh, 80 years ago, yeah. at least today, nowadays, back in 1942, the group of people considered Japanese was entirely race-based. Those who were as little as one-sixteenth Japanese could be placed in internment camps. Who would qualify as a, as a Muslim under this, this uh, infernal logic? I mean, there, there are people who, who are born Muslim or, or born in the Muslim family or in the nominally Muslim family who don't practice their religion. There are people who are married to Muslims. There are people who are children of one Muslim parent. How do you define a Muslim? I think you get to a good question of, you know, it's not just about is it legal, right? Maybe any policy that blatantly or explicitly bans Muslims would be struck down in a court of law as unconstitutional. The majority court in the ban or Trump v. Hawaii, you know, did point out to the fact that this was a facially neutral policy with a legitimate national security purpose. I disagree that that was the outcome in Trump v. Hawaii. The second question is sort of, is it practical? How effective is it? First, is excluding a particular race or religion even a way to improve national security? And then to your question, how in the world would you do it? At one point, when now President Trump was asked, you know, how are you going to find out whether someone is Muslim? This was in the days when he first announced a shutdown of Muslim immigration. He said something like, well, I would ask them, are you Muslim? 
And if they said yes, you know, they would be excluded. So if you look at even what that database would look like, I doubt, for example, that the Department of State or the Department of Homeland Security codes information about somebody's eligibility for a visa or admissibility in the United States around someone's religious beliefs or practices. Nowhere in the immigration statute or regulations, for example, do we see that type of coding. It does seem a bit impractical. And then, of course, to your point about how do we even classify someone as a Muslim, for some that might be a way of life. It's not a monolithic population. Most religions or individuals who are part of religion are not. I'm a Hindu. There are many different types of Hindus who may or may not practice in the way that the government is thinking. Yes, so but there's the question of practicality and beyond just the difficulty of defining or the arbitrary way of defining who's a Muslim, there's the sheer number of them. We're not talking about 100,000 people anymore, which was the case approximately for Japanese Americans. That was bad enough. That was large enough. But here we're probably talking about 1% of the population, if not more, which would be about 3, 4 million people. Mm-hmm. With these people, uh, you know, two years ago, a year and a half ago, it felt as if uh, a Donald Trump presidency might also be in that same realm of, of uh, dystopian imagination. One thing that also is starting to happen is the intimation that a lot of U.S. citizens who have been naturalized into the status of, of Americans are may be questioned, and their their files might be looked at again to see whether there was any irre- irregularity that might uh, put their status in question. Yeah, I mean, this denaturalization campaign by the Trump presidency, at least in my nearly 20 years of immigration practices, is quite unprecedented, or at least a confirmation that he is not only targeting people without documents or people who have not yet arrived, but is potentially, you know, on a campaign or assault against all people of color Mm -hmm. or people who were not born here. So, you know, we might say it's hyperbole or an exaggeration that this president is doing everything he can to make America white again, right? We sometimes hear that. And yet you look at some of the policies that he is creating or the words coming out of his mouth, and it starts to sound less like hyperbole. Yes, yes, that's the, the frightening thing, is that there seemed to be no, no restraint on the, this, this fantasy of turning the clock back to more white, more European America. We're seeing this administration attacking on many fronts at the same time. They're attacking the migrants from south of the border, uh, disrupting entire families, separating children from their parents. It brings to question the ability of the rest of the country, which is the majority, of uh, resisting and coalescing somehow. Do you see any efforts, any movement towards a coalition, a grand coalition, that would include also uh, progressives who, are, who happen to be white, who are worried about the direction this country is going? I, I do. And, and I think, you know, there are a couple silver linings here, right? First, uh, I've seen just a lot more organizing and cohesion 
within the Muslim, Arab, and South Asian communities and resistance to. I'm in rural Pennsylvania, and so I'm surrounded largely by certainly people who are impacted by immigration policy. In fact, the university where I teach is one of the most impacted universities by the first Muslim ban. But at the same time, if you look at our progressive community, it's a largely white community. I have been heartened by just the interest within this community to understand, to be educated, and if appropriate, resist. I recently spoke to a room of more than 60 people on a Sunday about family separation in the office of our Democratic candidate. And that's a real example, I think, of a large progressive group of people who are really disturbed about this administration's policies and want to be informed with accurate information and armed with tools for how to act. To come back to the question of denaturalization, how are they going about that? What are some of the ideas that are being thrown around? So I haven't done a lot of tracking in terms of the actual numbers or targets. I know anecdotally some who those who have been targeted are in the South Asian community and how else they're going about it is by hiring more people to help operate this denaturalization program. You know, you have to think about priorities, too, right? Every administration has limited resources. And so when we think about, you know, in a, in a universe of limited resources, where are we going to invest our efforts? Are we going to invest our efforts on those who are true threats to our society? Or are we going to invest our efforts on fathers with kids who've lived in the U.S. for over a decade, those who are naturalized citizens who have been contributing in meaningful ways? And we've seen that this is a president that wants to target all of the above. And at some point, that is going to become impractical, too, because we are you know, ending up with a policy that is haphazard and that has no sense of priority, either in the realm of enforcement or in looking at those who are legal immigrants or naturalized citizens. But in terms of the specific ways that they're thinking of denaturalizing, do you have any examples of the type of uh, loopholes they might find to justify denaturalizing uh, citizens? I haven't looked too much beyond, you know, knowing that there is a denaturalization process in our laws that have been rarely used and that there is an effort to hire more people to be involved with denaturalization, and that some of the targets include South Asians. I would say that those are the parameters of my knowledge. South Asians, regardless of religion or, or Muslim-sized South Asians? So I, I haven't studied it carefully, so I don't know that I'm best to comment on these topics. So I can't assume what religion. I, I don't know that religion in of in itself, at least in the examples I've seen, are the foundation. What is the role, in your opinion, of groups like the ACLU in, in a time like this? They are valiant, they try, they, they're getting a lot of support from the citizenry. Are they able to do anything, or at least in marginal uh, fashions? One historical marker 
of the limitations of the ACLU. It was the way they fought for Korematsu or against the Korematsu decision and lost. Mm -hmm. Are they any better armed these days to, to have more effect, more impact? I can speak most closely to ACLU's role in defending immigrant rights simply because that is the area that I've and space I've been in for a long time and their and their role has been significant not only in the Trump administration but in years prior and I think the lawyering that we've seen and I'd call that maybe another silver lining that there has been outstanding lawyering by ACLU and others in seeking to fight Trump's policies and to defend individual and immigrants' rights. I guess I would also say that it's, it's good that there's also been a coalition of, of litigators, right, around uh, many of these issues. So, for example, with the Muslim or travel ban, you had the state of Hawaii, right, stepping in. And I think that state attorney generals have been really important parties and plaintiffs in the Trump administration, and you have, you know, a South Asian from Hogan Lovells arguing for the state of Hawaii before the U.S. Supreme Court. You have organizations like Muslim Advocates playing a role in the litigation leading up to the Supreme Court decision. So I think the, the coalition that has been formed around the litigation as well has been heartening. So as the traditional checks and balances are failing right now as we speak, with uh, Trump uh, nominating yet another Supreme Court who, who seem completely hopeless in terms of helping uphold the law, as those checks and balances are failing us right now, you see perhaps a decentralization of, of power with more and more governors Uh, mayors, <laughs> uh, different centers of power yeah. challenging uh, federal power. So, I mean, I think we've seen that even without this Supreme Court vacancy, right? Especially in connection with family separation. You had 17 states involved in a lawsuit most recently and around the Muslim or travel ban. Call me optimistic or Or Pollyannish. Seeing the cup <laughs> is half full, or Pollyannish. <laughs> you know, I don't see the nomination of a conservative alone as being a defeat for checks and balances. Every justice is required to uphold the U.S. Constitution and the rule of law. We have a nominations process that I really hope that the Senate handles carefully and that the public and a cross-section of groups who have historically been involved in judicial nominations have a place at the table, virtually or actually, with questions and background research. But I'm not ready to say we're doomed. I, you know, even if you look at someone like Justice Kennedy, who was deferential and joined the majority in the travel ban decision or Hawaii v. Trump, You know, he's also been instrumental in other decisions, like Arizona versus United States. So I think fundamentally, if, if we can't believe that our judges and members of our government, by and large, believe in a rule of law, 
then we can't move forward. There's the presumption that the law is still strong enough, the institutions in and of themselves have the power to correct any excess perpetrated by one branch or the other. Before we close, is there anything else you would like to add on on this topic? I think we've covered a lot of topics. I think for those who are listening, who are directly impacted by any of the policies we talked about today, I would say that you're not alone. And please make sure to consult with an immigration lawyer if you have specific questions, because every case is fact-specific. And then for the general public, you know, do, you know, we're all getting information through a fire hose. And my, my mantra is to make sure you're getting your information from the right fire hose so that you're walking away with clear and accurate information in a time where it's, it's often difficult to find. Shobha Siva Prasad Bhatia is a Samuel Weiss faculty scholar and clinical professor of law at Penn State University. She spoke with Khalil Bendib. From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. Stay with us.
Marcel Khalife is one of the Arab world's most revered cultural icons. His arrangements, especially those inspired by the poems of Mahmoud Darwish and performed by his band, the Mayadeen Ensemble, founded in 1976, became part of the daily cultural life of two generations. With his latest double CD album, Fall of the Moon, which is dedicated to Mahmoud Darwish, Marcel Khalife pays tribute to the great poet with some familiar covers of earlier works and new arrangements that reflect his long musical journey. Professor Bishara Dumani spoke with Marcel Khalife about his artistic and personal relationship with the great Palestinian poet Mahmoud Darwish, who called Marcel his heart's artistic twin. Your relationship with Mahmoud Darwish goes back a long time. What drew you to him, and can you describe what you call the Dashal Ula, or your initial fascination with his poetry? Uh, what were you trying to do when you wrote the music for Fall of the Moon? I long for the child I used to be. I wish I didn't have to leave him behind. In a way, I never wanted to let go of that internal child. Ever since childhood, I've been aware that even adults don't really know that much. As kids, we would try to leave the realm of childhood to reach the realm of grown-ups. But I've always wanted to have that ability to become that child again, who could smell the perfume of mint and za'atar, which both fill Mahmoud Darwish's poetry and retrieve the proximity to the sea, you know, where people that comes from the seashore. Whenever my family was away, I'd go with the fishermen. The waves would take us quite far. The air filled with the purity of olive, rose water, with the intimate feel of the motherland, the grandfather, the mother, the father. Today, when you look back, you wish you could reach that distant and magical childhood again. Of course, it's impossible to bring it back, that ambient air which had magic in it and fun. We are said to play music, and music is indeed a very playful thing. It's a wonder how fast the years go by. I try to go back to that magical time when men were pure, and the music attempts to recreate that lost purity. I try to write music that will reflect that purity, that is found in the poetry and delivered to those who haven't even read the poems. What you call this return to the clarity of youth opens up new creative horizons, new beginnings. When did you first read Mahmoud Darwish and what were your memories uh, of, of this reading? Actually, the first time was right after I had 
graduated from the Beirut Institute of Music. I was still young and I was rebelling against everyone and everything. And I wanted to do all of that through music. Uh, the civil war had started in Beirut, and so I had sought refuge in my native village, where political thought there was quite different than my own politics. This was Amshit in the east, in the Lebanese mountains. When I arrived, the only thing I found that excited my curiosity were collections of Mahmoud Darwish's poetry. I didn't know who he was at all, but I started reading his poems. And I immediately thought, these were made to be put to music and sung. So I started to take excerpts from those collections and to write melodies for them. I wasn't sure whether this would work or whether people would be able to enjoy them and appreciate them in musical form, but this was fun for me. And this fun eventually led me to what was much deeper and authentic in Darwish's poetry. I was a young man, graduated from the Musical Institute, and I had great ambitions, but many of those ambitions were frustrated by the civil war. And yet, thankfully, serendipitously, I had happened upon these collections of Derwish's poems. However, during this whole period of time, I was never to meet Mahmoud Derwish, even though, as it turns out, we were living in the same city. Then one day, I finally met him, and this was the beginning of a friendship that lasted until the end. Back then, I wasn't aware there were such things as copyrights and believed that such poetry belonged to everyone. But Mahmoud was above these earthly considerations as well, and he had always appreciated the fact that I had put some of his poems to music. We had a very strong friendship that lasted all through the years. Through this work, I wanted to make clear that even in war, there is love and that the rose somehow manages to grow through the ruins, which gives us all hope, reminding us that the most beautiful thing, the most precious thing we possess is life. To quote Mahmoud Darwish, quote, I told absence that I missed her, and I became present to fill the hole left by her, end of quote. Darwish's universe is one where childhood becomes dominant and ubiquitous, this very childhood that is never possible to seize again, through poetry and music, it becomes possible to become a child again. The child plays once more, and work becomes filled with joy. One must celebrate life and love. Mahmoud Darwish has a collection of poems called Foreign Woman, and I translated it into a duo for cello and piano, whose voices stand in for a man and a woman. We're not sure which of the cello or the piano is the man and which is the woman in this marriage of two instruments mixing together. In the collection, The Foreign Woman, I preferred not to sing and only to compose an instrumental piece. Mm. هذه العلاقة الممزوجة بالعاطفة الإنسانية وبالحب اللي قصدوا محمود بديوان سرير الغريبة ما حبيت غني حبيت أكتب موسيقى لهذا الديوان مثلا
there's something here that comes to mind that requires explanation. Uh, people like myself who grew up with the poetry of Mahmoud Darwish and your music at the same time would sometimes be introduced to the poems of Mahmoud Darwish through your musical interpretation. And that experience affected how we read uh, the rest of his poetry and in dialectical fashion, I suppose, how we would listen to your music. W- what were the nature of exchanges between you? I never asked Mahmoud Darwish to write a poem specifically for me. And he never asked me to put one of his poems to music either. This relationship we had was a subtle relationship. And from time to time, Mahmoud would ask me, have you read this poem of mine? Never going farther than that. It was almost like a mutual seduction of sorts. There was never a single instance when we specifically told each other, let's collaborate on this one or that other one. Mahmoud would listen to the music that sprang out of his poems, and sometimes I would hear from others what he had said about my interpretation of one of his poems. There was one titled, I Am in Exile, which he wrote when he was 60 years old, and which I loved a lot. And I only finally sang it when I reached the age of 60 myself. Alas, by then Mahmoud was gone, and he never got to hear it. It's one of my all-time favorites, because it has so much meaning. My music isn't meant as an exact rendition of the lyrics, music having its own language and integrity. And it is by listening to the whole composition that one gets meaning, not note by note, but the whole thing at once. The music also fills in certain dots left by the poem, the unstated emotions between the words. One cannot summarize the poem by analyzing the music. The important thing is to just listen. My grandfather was a fisherman who was passionate about music and songs. He sang a lot and he had a great voice. He was well known in the area where he lived and my relationship with him was very deep. I loved him the best. I was captivated by the sound of his voice. He would call me to tell me stories and sing to me. 
He would put me on his shoulders and sing, and I'd play with his fez while he did. شو وصلك للعود؟ الحقيقة العود اجى بالصدفة لأنه أنا طوشت أهلي وأنا صغير في آلاتي المنزلية المحصورة بالطناجر. To tell you the truth, the oud was almost an accident. I had always played with all sorts of kitchen utensils and I was constantly drumming and trying out different sounds on different tables in the house. Because of my propensity to play music on all these surfaces, one day finally my mother asked herself, He's obsessed with music. Maybe we should get him a real instrument. I even drummed on glass surfaces like windows. My mother's influence on me was always huge. And so my father agreed to listen to her and asked that the oud be brought home to me. The oud being the most affordable of all musical instruments where I come from. So my father asked one of his friends to bring me a oud from Souq al-Hamidiyah in Damascus. This person was regularly trading between Beirut and Damascus. The oud cost us exactly 75 liras. I remember that detail vividly. This man took a very, very long time to finally bring back the oud one day. And when the oud made it into our home, what a celebration that was. I had finally graduated from the kitchen utensils and was now the proud owner of a beautiful instrument. Without even knowing the scales of the oud, I started playing on it. The second day, my mother took me to this music teacher who knew quite little about notes and music, but had memorized a few military tunes, and he had built his own oud with his own hands. I studied with him for about three months, and after three months, my parents decided it was high time for me to go to the conservatory in Beirut. This, for us, was a long journey in those days with inadequate roads, but I started going to Beirut at that tender age twice a week, like someone who had always been ready for music from the very start. Of course, my mother, who unfortunately died young at the age of 39, she always knew that I had something special, and she had this absolutely wonderful open mind, and it was all thanks to her. When you study music, you learn all sorts of music, and you acquire at least two cultures one Arab Middle Eastern and the other Western and international. There was no separation between the two for me. This allowed me to widen my horizons and feel more varied sensations. So I would listen one minute to a symphony by Beethoven and then to a composition by Muhammad Uthman. All of this beauty mixed in together from the very beginning. And so it was that later I was to conduct orchestras internationally, following international canons, as can be heard in some of my music. For example, Concerto Arabi, Concerto Andalus, which I played with some of the world's greatest orchestras. Music really being the one universal language that we all understand. 
بس حدا يحكي قدامك صيني ما بتفهم عليه وبحس انه الموسيقى هي اللسان الكوني الوحيد في العالم اللي كل الناس بتفهم عليه يعني interacted with a huge audience over a long period of time. How do you feel that your audience and your relationship with it have changed over that time? الحقيقة هو منذ البداية يعني لم يكن الموضوع سهل لأنه أنا منذ البداية حتى في الأسطوان الأولى لم تكن الأسطوان الأولى هي أسطوان شعبية In reality, from the very start, this was an uncertain thing for me. My first record was not an easy record. My first songs were varied in nature and scope, and their relationship with popular taste and popular music were uncertain. What was very fortunate was that even in the beginning, there were groups of students, scholars, and intellectuals who instantly took a liking to my songs. Because from the start in my music, there was a rupture from the previous musical tradition in Lebanon. I had written various pieces for different uses some for movie scores, some for dance, others yet for different uses. I had academic songs and compositions that students and scholars studied and analyzed as part of their curriculum. I also wrote works especially for Oud, without any specific classic in them. Then also wrote works completely written for one Oud, and sometimes works for two Ouds, and entire evenings especially dedicated to the Oud. And then other soirees I would dedicate entirely to songs. And that's how it all gradually happened. Some of these repertoires I played in 70 cities around the world. From this period on, there was always this rupture. But there was never a time when I completely abandoned the singing. There were always a lot of songs, but these songs were concerned with the depth of the music and the depth of the poetry and they were never quickly thrown together. As far as my relationship with the public, I never really wrote this or that music specifically to appeal to any particular public or to find wide acceptance. You know, you can lose your soul by doing that. I always felt that if one type of music managed to touch the public and meet with acclaim, that was wonderful. But I never set out to write specifically to become popular. متكل على بساطة معينة بمشروع معين يعني دائما ببحث بجوات الاشياء على معنى جديد للكتاب What do you consider your place to be in Lebanon's cultural environment today? Uh, Lebanon has a long uh, reputation as a leader uh, in the cultural field, but it doesn't seem so anymore. How do you see the future? 
بطل لبنان رائد لانه يعني الحرب منها هيني اثرت كثير في لبنان لبنان has suffered tremendously from the war which had a terrible and lasting impact on Lebanon. I still very much feel that we need to rethink and rebuild Lebanese society, even this long after the end of the civil war. Each sectarian community having tried to eliminate the other sects. In the 60s and 70s, Lebanon had been a beacon, an endless source of innovation in all types of cultural media and genres. But the face of the city drastically changed during and after the war. The politics and the mentality completely changed as well, unfortunately. So the question remains, how do we bring back the bright, shining face of Beirut of before the war? Marcel Khalife is a renowned Lebanese composer, singer, and oud player. He spoke with Professor Bishara Dumani of Brown University. Khalil Bendib did the voiceover. From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. And that's it for us this week. Voices of the Middle East and North Africa is produced at KPFA Studios in Berkeley. To get in touch, you can call us at 
6767 extension 632 email vomekpfa at yahoo.com connect with us on our facebook at voices of the middle east and north africa or follow us on vomina radio please join us next time for another edition of voices of the middle east and north africa <laughs>